Before its maiden voyage, the the Titanic was described as practically unsinkable. When the president of the company that owned the Titanic was told that the Titanic was in trouble, he announced, quote, We place absolute confidence in the Titanic. We believe the boat is unsinkable. Now, by the time he got the message and spoke those words, the boat was already at the bottom of the ocean. I wonder if that's a bit like us. We think that we're invincible. We think that we're in control of our life. Then we hit an iceberg and our life falls apart. And we see that we're not as bulletproof as we thought we were. In today's passage in the Bible that we're looking at, that is exactly what happens to the disciples. They hit something that they are not prepared for. They hit an event that causes them all to desert Jesus. Jesus warns them about it in Mark 14, verse 27. Verse 27, You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And as we work through today's passage, that's exactly what will happen. The shepherd is struck. Jesus is overwhelmed as he contemplates what lies ahead for him. And when the shepherd is struck, the disciples scatter and desert him. Firstly, Peter and James and John, who can't even stay awake with him to pray in the garden. Then Judas, who betrays him. And eventually, down in verse 50, all the disciples. Verse 50, then everyone deserted him and fled. So let's begin back at verse 27, though, and look at these last moments before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. You will all fall away. Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is a shocking thing to be told, so shocking that the disciples themselves can't believe it. Look at verse 29. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. But no matter how many times they deny it, it is going to happen. They're only denying it because they do not know their own weakness. The disciples would like to think that they can stand up to whatever lies ahead. In fact, if you remember back to Mark 10, James and John, here the three that go into the to pray with him are Peter, James and John. James and John asked Jesus if they could sit at his right and left side back in Mark chapter 10. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. James and John at least would like to think that whatever Jesus goes through, they can go through it too. And now Peter joins them. Even if everyone else falls away, I will not. Peter, James and John. How ironic that those three are the first three to fall. Probably because they're the closest to Jesus and they see what he's going through. Before we find out how they respond though, what does it mean that the shepherd will be struck? I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. We find out in verse 32. 
They went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Now, this is quite unusual for Jesus. So far in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been the calm one. He's been the one there to comfort his disciples. You might remember the storm back in Mark 4 where his disciples are terrified. Jesus is asleep in the boat. When they wake him up, he says, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? He rebukes his disciples for being scared. In the next chapter, when Jairus' daughter dies, everyone is wailing and crying. It's Jesus who says, what's all this commotion? Don't be afraid, just believe. When he's walking on the water, the disciples again are terrified. Jesus says, take courage, it's me. Don't be afraid. Even the passage that we looked at last week, as Jesus shares the Passover meal with his disciples, and he talks about his death, and he even predicts his betrayal. There's no mention there of him being disturbed or emotional. I'm not saying he was emotionless, far from it, but he seemed in control, didn't he? Here something changes. Jesus begins to become deeply distressed, overwhelmed with sorrow, overwhelmed. It's too much for him to the point of death. If Jesus knew this event was coming, Why is he so overwhelmed by it? It's as if now that it's here, it's worse than he could ever have imagined. What is it that he's so overwhelmed by? By verse 35. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is looking into the cup that he is about to be handed by his heavenly father. And when he looks inside the cup, it is so overwhelming that it almost kills him just to think about it. Now Mark has already told us what's in the cup. Jesus is about to bear in his body the sins of humanity. It's a bit different to our response to evil and sin, isn't it? We're pathetic in our response to evil and sin. I mean, some evil we are appalled by, some sin we are disgusted by, but some sin we excuse. And some sin we even welcome and we willingly participate in it and enjoy it. Not Jesus. Jesus was sinless. Sin is the exact opposite of everything that we know about him and about his father. God cannot tolerate sin. And here the perfect son of God is about to be overwhelmed by sin. He's about to become sin. Not only that, though, when he takes upon himself our sin, he will also bear God's anger upon that sin. He's not just taking our sin, he's taking our judgment for it. The cup of God in the Old Testament is called the cup of his judgment. In Psalm 78, it's described like this. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. 
God is slow to anger. God is patient. But when people continue to disobey him, God's anger is unquenchable. God has a cup full of his righteous anger, ready to pour out. It is his right response to the terrible things that happen in this world. And those who continue to disobey God, they will be forced to drink the cup of his judgment right down to the dregs, every last drop. Which begs the question, why Jesus? If the cup of God's wrath is reserved for the disobedient, why is Jesus going to drink it? Mark's already told us, hasn't he? Jesus is about to drink the cup in the place of his people so that they will not have to drink it. That's what we saw last week. Jesus is God's new Passover lamb so that his judgment can pass over his people. It's as if Jesus offers a free check to pay for our wrongs. But checks are never free, are they? Someone has to pay for them. And here we see the price that Jesus had to pay to be able to set us free. Jesus is going to drink the cup of God's judgment to its very dregs till there's none left. And the thought of that is so terrifying for Jesus that he actually pauses and he asks God for a way out. Think about what's happening there. This moment is what the whole last three years of Jesus' life have been heading towards. Three times in Mark's Gospel, Jesus has predicted that this is what would happen. Mark 10.45, he said the reason he came was to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the reason he came into the world, and yet now that this moment has arrived, it is so horrifying that Jesus prays for another way, a way out. Verse 35. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. When Laura was three years old, you might remember, she jumped off the trampoline and she broke her leg. And I had to take her up to the hospital and she was in extreme pain, not helped by the fact that she refused to take any Panadol. She's lying on the bed and she had to move from one bed to another bed to get an x-ray. And she knew that she was to be moved and she just looked up at me and she begged me, please don't move me, Daddy. It hurts. Please, Daddy. Nothing hurts a father's heart more than to say no to his child and put them through pain. That's what's happening here. Jesus says to his father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. But he doesn't leave it there, does he? Even at this moment of horror, Jesus adds the words, yet not what I want, but what you want. Even at this moment of horror, Jesus doesn't fall away. He's willing to go through with it if that's what his father wants. In contrast, though, his disciples aren't so faithful, are they? You will all fall away. Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. 
And as Jesus is struck, as Jesus struggles in the garden, that is exactly what happens. His disciples fall away. Verse 37. Then he returned to his disciples. This is Peter, James and John. And he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Look at that phrase, Simon, he said to Peter. Do you see the problem with that? Simon, he said to Peter. Back in Mark chapter 3, Jesus gave Simon the the nickname Peter. Peter means stone or rock, you know, faithful one, rocky. Since then, we haven't heard the name Simon again. He has been Peter, but not here. Here, Jesus calls Peter by the name he had before he met Jesus, Simon. How demeaning that must have been. It's as if Jesus is rubbing his failure and weakness in his face. I think Jesus does that because he wants the disciples to realise their own weakness. He's not excusing their failure. He wants them to see that without a shepherd, they are lost. Without him, they can't do anything. Verse 37, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Now, even after that rebuke, even after that warning, they can't do it. They fall asleep again. And then a third time, In verse 40, when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Well, you wouldn't, would you? What would you say? Peter, James and John have failed him. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. Next comes Judas, verse 43. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Judas has fallen away. There's one last-minute attempt, though, at bravery in verse 47, one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear, but it doesn't last long. It doesn't last long at all. Look at verse 50. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. He fled naked. This is just complete cowardice. This is embarrassing. This is complete failure. And so Jesus' prophecy has come true. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Why did the disciples fail? It's not because of who they were. Jesus didn't pick particularly cowards and wimps. They failed because their shepherd was taken away from them. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. 
Do you think that you'd do any better than they did? Do you think you'd be able to pray? If you do, you're as foolish as they were. Because this passage is showing us what we are all like without a shepherd. This passage is showing us what we're like at the bottom of our hearts. The disciples thought they were invincible. Peter, James and John swore they would stick with Jesus through anything. And so they needed to be taught a lesson. Because Jesus is not after disciples who think they're invincible. Jesus is after disciples who realise that they need him. And I think that's what this passage is about. The disciples are learning what they're like when they're on their own. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. Does that phrase ring any bells for you from Mark's Gospel as you think back? You will all fall away. That actually came up in the parable of the sower. Other seed sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. See, by Mark 14, no one is the good soil. Not even Jesus' 12 disciples. If you want to be of use to Jesus, you have to get rid of the false idea that you're invincible. Jesus is not after people who are bulletproof. Jesus is after people who realise that without him, we fail. In fact, in fact, Paul in Corinthians says that God deliberately chooses to put his gospel treasure in weak, fragile, clay vessels so that the glory goes to him. See, God deliberately puts his gospel in weak people so that when people look at our lives, they think there's nothing spectacular about that person. It must be God. That's why we need to drop the charade that we're invincible. That's why we don't need to be afraid of letting people in to see who we really are. In fact, we do people a disservice if we hide our failures because we are better able to minister to other people from our weaknesses than we are from our strength. Sometimes people become Christians when their life is at a complete low, when they've done something terrible or when they realise that their life is going nowhere. That is completely appropriate. It's when we realise our helplessness, it's in that moment of honesty that we see most clearly our need for Jesus. And I think for a lot of people who go through life without hitting rock bottom, it's a shame for them because nothing else put things into perspective better than when there's nothing else left. Because without Jesus, we're not bulletproof. We're not temptation-proof. We're failures. And when you come to realise that, there's only two places to go. There's the way Judas went, in complete despair. Matthew 27, verse 3, we find out what happens to Judas. When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said. I have betrayed innocent blood. 
What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. When Judas saw himself for who he really was, his failures, his guilt, his weakness, he killed himself. Which is such a tragedy because what Judas did was not unforgivable. Nothing is unforgivable. Judas' problem was that when he was faced with his failings, he ran away from Jesus instead of turning back to him. What happens to the other 11 disciples after they fail? They turn back to Jesus, which is exactly what Jesus told them to do. Look with me one last time at Mark 14, 27, and there's a verse we've been skipping over, the one that comes straight after it. Mark 14, 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. In other words, Jesus knows that after the disciples' failure and after his death, he's going to rise again and he calls them to come and meet with him again. And what does he do when he meets with his disciples? He sends them out not in their strength, but in his power. It's the Great Commission. You might want to look it up later in Matthew 28, verse 18, but I'll read it for you. This is what Jesus says to the disciples in Galilee. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What comforting words they would have been for the disciples. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. There will never again be a time when Jesus' sheep are left alone. It only happened once. And afterwards, what a different story it was after Jesus rose again and sent his disciples out. Peter, he was really rocky, wasn't he? In the book of Acts, as you read about the disciples, they are filled with courage. They don't care about jail or beatings, even death. They just want to tell people about Jesus. Not because of their own abilities, but because Jesus has promised to be with them. That's the confidence we can have as we talk to people about Jesus. Not confidence in our own abilities. Confidence in our shepherd who will never leave us. The Lord Jesus is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. <laughs> 